the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. And you should probably know that, um, well, James Blend, he's producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice, he's given up the use of his office for the cause. Hey, glad to be with you today. We have quite a lineup of guests. We'll be talking with Catherine Gorka, or Katie. She serves as the director of the Fulner Institute's Center for Civil Society and the American Dialogue on why we have to um, advocate for better civics education in our schools. We'll also talk with Zach Smith. He, Smith, rather, He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies on why Washington, D.C. cannot constitutionally become a state through the legislative process. And finally, in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Anne-Marie Hancock. She's returning. We'll continue a conversation we began a couple of weeks ago. She's the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral. She uh, became the caregiver of her 90-plus-year-old terminally ill mother, who by her own description was rather cantankerous. She didn't accept the diagnosis. She lived by herself until the end. She insisted on driving, even though, well, you can imagine she had some challenges in that area. But she offers some insight, advice, and encouragement for those who are caregivers uh, to those we love. Taking a look at the uh, headlines for the day, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp declared a state of emergency today following a surge of, rather yesterday, following a surge of shootings throughout the July 4th weekend that injured 31 people, killed five after weeks of violent crime and property destruction in Atlanta. The holiday weekend also saw dozens of shootings in several cities that included the deaths of several children. The declaration authorized the activation of a thousand National Guard troops in order to protect state property and patrol The streets. Peaceful protests, he said, were hijacked by criminals with a dangerous, destructive agenda. Now innocent Georgians are being targeted, shot and left for dead. Kemp, a Republican, said in a statement, this lawlessness must be stopped in order to restore our capital city. I have declared a state of emergency and called up the Georgia Guard because the safety of our citizens comes first. Well, he added that this measure all uh, will allow troops to protect state property and dispatch state law enforcement officers to patrol our streets. Enough with the tough talk, he added. We must protect the lives and livelihoods of all Georgians. Well, the troops will be assigned to protect state buildings that include the Capitol, the governor's mansion, the headquarters of the Department of Public Safety. The National Guard presence will free police officers to increase patrols on roadways and in communities, especially in Atlanta, the governor said. Among those killed over the holiday weekend was an eight-year-old girl, uh, Sicoria Turner, who was riding in a car Saturday night in Atlanta when at least two people opened fire on the vehicle. Authorities said Turner was in the car with her mother and another adult when the driver attempted to drive through illegally placed barricades to get to a parking lot. A group of armed individuals had blocked the entrance. By the way, the mayor from Atlanta is opposed to the idea and thought the uh, governor went over her head. Under the circumstances, however, I can see why that might have been merited. In other uh, news, um, 
Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is tested positive for coronavirus, which is, of course, no respecter of persons. Uh, Atlanta Mayor uh, is facing criticism due to the early handling of the protests, and the governor's actions are evidence of that. And uh, street racers performed donuts, uh, blocked intersections, according to observers in that area. Meanwhile, a prominent Delaware law firm founded by presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden received a paycheck protection uh, program uh, loan for between $150,000 to $350,000, according to records released on Monday by the Treasury Department and the Small Business Administration. The Trump campaign said that the records conflict with recent messages from Biden's campaign that the PPP program is both ineffective and a vehicle to reward Trump cronies, which, of course, his law firm would not uh, would not fit. Instead of attacking President Trump as an involuntary reflex, maybe Joe Biden should just say thank you once in a while. Trump campaign director of communications Tim Murtaugh told Fox News. Well, the PPP saved 51 million jobs nationally, including at Biden's old law firm and a number of companies connected to Obama administration alums. A very likely explanation is that Biden simply doesn't know what he's uh, talking about and would rather make a political weapon out of a program that helped people make their rent and mortgage payments, the president went on to say. Well, the law firm that received the large payouts was originally founded as Biden and Walsh and is now known as uh, Monzak, Merksey and McLaughlin and Browder, apparently. Biden currently has no financial interest in that firm. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's team is rejecting reports that a business connected to her husband also received big money under the government's emergency coronavirus relief program, arguing that his connection to the company is minimal. The company, EDI Associates in San Rafael, California, received between $350,000 and a million dollars in Paycheck Protection Program money. He's an investor, Pelosi spokesperson Drew Hamill told Fox News. He wasn't involved in the application for the loan, nor was he aware of it. Well, Eric Toner, a senior scholar at, scholar rather, at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, says health experts won't ask Americans to take off their masks anytime soon. He says he's been preparing for an outbreak like the novel coronavirus as part of his work for years. Johns Hopkins practices virus stimulations, or rather simulations, very different thing as part of his of, um the preparedness protocol with the goal of offering public health experts and policymakers a blueprint of what to do in a pandemic. Well, one of those uh, simulations took place last October when Toner and a team of researchers launched a coronavirus pandemic simulation in New York. They ran through various scenarios on how residents, governments, and private businesses would hypothetically react to the threat. One thing that stood out to, uh, to him and his associates, face coverings are a vital defense to stop the spread of COVID-19. He believes the virus won't slow down in the U.S. even as states start to slowly reopen. There's going to be no summertime lull with a big wave in the fall, he said, as part of CNET's Hacking the Apocalypse series. It's clear that we are uh, having a significant resurgence of cases uh, in the summer, and they'll get bigger, and it'll keep going until we lock things down again, he says. Well, Toner said until there is a vaccine, community's best defense is to fight it um, uh, through creating distance and wearing masks. I think that mask wearing and some degree of social distancing we will be living with, hopefully living with happily for several years, he said. It's actually pretty straightforward. If you cover our faces and both you and another uh, that you're interacting with are wearing a mask, the risk of transmission goes away or at least goes way, way down. Well, Mr. Cuomo is blaming his staffers uh, for the uh, situation that they have experienced in the state of uh, 
of New York. Uh, New York hospitals released more than 6,300 recovering coronavirus patients into nursing homes during the height of the pandemic under a controversial now scrapped policy, state officials said Monday. But they argued it was not the uh, not to blame for one of the nation's highest nursing home death tolls. Again, Cuomo blaming his staffers rather than the buck stopping with him. Uh, Town Hall's Matt Vespa says Cuomo signed the order. He killed those people in some very strong language. Meanwhile, the media has been attacking Trump for his response to the rise in cases. From the story, the president is not downplaying the severity of the virus. Uh, Ms. McEnany said at a, a press briefing, what the president is noting is that at the height of this pandemic, we were 2,500 deaths per day. We are now at a place where on the 4th of July, there were 254. That's a tenfold decrease in mortality. And officials are starting to admit that protests played a role in the coronavirus spike. Several big city mayors and top officials are acknowledging that weeks of anti-police protests and riots may have contributed to surging coronavirus rates weeks after Democrats and even some epidemiologists openly encouraged Black Lives Matter rallies and um, allies to demonstrate in the streets. The Atlanta mayor who was involved in the early protesting said uh, has COVID-19 herself. The next link shows her at a protest with uh, a mask that the trends continue a downward trajectory. So while the numbers may be of cases may be going up, the number of fatalities is not. Uh, the city of Seattle is telling white employees to affirm their complicity in racism affirm their complicity in racism. And they also uh, want them, uh, and here's where things get really difficult, to work on undoing your own whiteness. Now, as an African-American woman, I'm not quite sure how you accomplish all of that, or or certainly uh, whether or not it's necessary, helpful, or healthy, but that's the subject for another day. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and be back in just a few moments to continue looking at some of the day's headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Katie Gorka. She serves as the director of the Fulner Institute's Center for Civil Society and the American Dialogue on why we can't, uh, why we need to advocate rather for better civics education in our schools. We'll also talk with Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies on why Washington, D.C. cannot constitutionally become a state through the legislative process. Uh, And we'll talk to Anne-Marie Hancock in the next hour. She's the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral. It's something of a memoir of her caregiving for her 90-year-old cantankerous, difficult mother in her final years. Returning to some of the day's headlines, the Washington Examiner reports that House Democrats released spending bills Monday that are likely to clash with the Senate Republicans and earn a veto threat from the president less than three months from a critical government funding deadline. No big surprise there, I suppose. One spending measure kills any new border wall funding in 2021. Another legalizes the hiring of DREAMers by members of Congress. A provision also requires the removal of an expanded list of statues now on display in Capitol, depicting men linked to the Confederacy and other racial injustices, end quote. Well, this is how Democrats plan to uh, set up the president, ensure a veto, and hang him as a cold-hearted Um, uh, president for not passing out more checks. Well, violence has spiked in cities nationwide following weeks-long anti-police protests over the death of George Floyd, which is sort of faded in the distance. George who? We've moved way uh, beyond that. 
uh, at least uh, those who are wreaking havoc. According to government statistics and media reports, the Daily Caller points out that both New York City and Minneapolis have had over 100 shootings since Floyd's May 25th death. In Los Angeles, the homicide rate rose 250 percent in just one week, and homicides in Atlanta have doubled since this time last year. Seattle's Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ, or CHOP, or whatever you want to call that disaster, led to a 525 percent increase in crime, including the death of two teenagers. As crime rates rose, activists have called to abolish the police, an idea that's gained traction among liberals, but those who actually live on the ground in real cities under the authority of these left-leading liberal leaders, not so much. The Supreme Court unanimously ruled that states can sanction or remove faithless presidential electors, electors rather, hampering the Democrats' efforts to undermine the Electoral College. And Mitch McConnell has opened the door to direct payments in the next coronavirus bill. George Soros is set to double 2016 spending, pouring some $40 million into super PACs. Unhinged um, anti-Trump Republicans endorse an increasingly leftist Joe Biden, which leaves many scratching their heads. It's one thing not to support Trump. It's another to support Biden among those uh, Republicans. Three quarters of people who live with a coronavirus sufferer may develop silent immunity without needing antibodies, according to the UK Daily Mail. And immunity can be short lived, according to another expert. Well, herd immunity may not be achievable in um, the fight against the coronavirus, uh, and to achieve it, it may be ultimately disastrous. We'll talk more about that today if we have time or tomorrow if not. And the EPA has approved the use of Lysol surface disinfectant products against COVID-19. Well, protests and riots may have spread the coronavirus, some cities admit now. Uh, And is the pandemic coming to an end at last? The answer, no. Judicial activism in uh, Dakota access pipeline must shut down by August 5th. The court has now ruled, adding pressure to an already fragile industry and a victory for Russia. Harvard says with its $41 billion in uh, endowments, uh, they're going online, but $50,000 tuition costs is unchanged. The U.S. travel ban is costing Europe billions, and states mandating masks have beginning to shut have begun rather to shut down again to the left's glee. Georgia's governor is authorizing the National Guard troops after an eight-year-old was killed there, and a new bill would require New York cops to have personal insurance for liability suits. Massachusetts is expanding mail-in voting to all voters in that state, despite protestations. And Florida orders uh, public schools to reopen in August. What do they know that the rest of the country doesn't? Cancel Hamilton. Trends says the social justice warriors demand Disney pull musicals that glorify slave trader or a slave trader, singular, if not plural. Cancel culture, just cancel everything. Well, country music legend and American patriot Charlie Daniels died at 83 yesterday. And DHS is ruling a change will allow ICE to remove foreign students taking online courses um, load in the fall. A corrupt U.N. is slamming Donald Trump for killing Iranian General Soleimani because there was an insufficient amount of evidence he was behind the ongoing or imminent attack. And communist China has detained Zhu Jiangrun, leading a critic of President Xi Jinping. So he has been detained and who knows what that ultimately will mean. 
Well, this day in history, 1981, President Ronald Reagan announces he is nominating Arizona Judge Sandra Day O'Connor to become the first female justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. 1865, four people are hanged in Washington, D.C. for conspiring with John Wilkes Booth to assassinate President Abraham Lincoln, Lewis Powell, a.k.a. Lewis Payne, David Harold, George Atzerodt, and Mary Surratt, the first woman to be executed by the federal government. On this day in history, 1976, the United States Military Academy at West Point includes female cadets for the first time as 119 women join the class of 1980. And on this day in history, 2018, after two days of talks with North Korea in the capital, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says he has commitments for new discussions on denuclearization. However, North Korea says Pompeo's visit has been regrettable and that the United States is making gangster-like demands. The rest of that, of course, we all know. Well, taking a look at the numbers for the state of Oregon, the COVID-19 updates for the 7th of July. There's been an outbreak on Newburgh youth baseball team and Oregon reports 219 new confirmed and presumptive cases. An important distinction, and we don't know where that line is drawn in those 219 uh, COVID cases, but five new deaths that actually span several days, only two attributed Uh, if I understand correctly, to today. Among those uh, who have passed away in the state of Oregon, a 93-year-old man in Multnomah County who tested positive back in uh, June died on the 30th at uh, 30th of June at Providence uh, Portland Medical Center. He had underlying conditions. The 217th death, a 74-year-old woman in Yamhill County who tested positive uh, also in June died on the 30th at Willamette Valley Medical Center. She had underlying conditions as well, and that is a thread that we're seeing. Uh, Another of the deaths, a 56-year-old woman in Lynn County who tested positive died on July the 5th at Good Samaritan Regional Medical Center. She had underlying medical conditions. The 219th COVID death, an 80-year-old man in Marion County, he had underlying medical conditions, uh, uh, conditions, yes. And let's see, the 6th of July, a 62-year-old woman in Marion County who tested positive on the 10th of June died on the 6th of July in Salem Hospital, all of the Oregon uh, deaths um, mentioned had underlying conditions. Well, a study in Spain has found that only a small percentage of people have COVID-19 antibodies, warning that herd immunity will be difficult to achieve. With at least 251,789 diagnosed cases and at least 23,000 deaths, Spain has been on the worst affected, one of the worst affected countries in the coronavirus pandemic, according to data from Johns Hopkins University. Well, the Spanish study, which was published in The Lancet, involved more than 61,000 participants, experts from the Institute of Health Carlos um, III in uh, Madrid, the Spanish uh, Ministry of Health and Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health worked on the project. Just 5% of those surveyed had antibodies, a number which fell to less than 3% in coastal regions, although this was um, higher in some other parts of Spain. More than 10% of people surveyed around Madrid, for example, had antibodies. So the headline simply, COVID-19 antibody study in that country warns that herd immunity cannot be achieved without devastating effects. The numbers have to be staggering in order for that to be achieved. Well, coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Catherine or Katie Gorka. She serves as the director of the Fulner Institute Center for Civil Society and American Dialogue on why we must uh, advocate for better civics education in our schools. For example, if you're going to be a leftist, which statues should you um, push over and which one should you allow to remain? Know the difference, know what they mean, why they're there, and then 
make a reasoned argument in favor of removing them. That might be too much to ask for, but we'll talk with Catherine about that. And we'll talk with Zach Smith, a legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation on why Washington can't constitutionally become a state as House Democrats uh, would uh, like to see it um, through the legislative process. So that's all coming up this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, writing for The Daily Signal, says we must advocate for better civics education in our schools. And we're certainly seeing examples of that now. The sharp decline in civic knowledge among Young people is growing, and it's a growing concern. The turmoil that we've seen in recent weeks, the destruction of statues and memorials, uh, many of which uh, those who were involved in the destruction had no idea of the history of, um, is shines a bright light on that uh, that necessity. Well, Catherine Gorka serves as the director of the Fulner Institute Center for Civil Society and the American Dialogue. She joins us to talk about why we must advocate for better civics education in our schools. If we fail to do so, there will be serious consequence. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. I'm happy to be here with you. You write in your Daily Signal column that justice can only be achieved if America remains a nation governed by the rule of law, committed to the founding belief that all men are created equal. But ignorance of America's founding among today's youth has led many of them to seek justice in ways that uh, will lead to tyranny. Uh, that certainly is a statement that we're witnessing unfold before us right now, but perhaps don't take as seriously as we ought the consequence of failing to provide sufficient civic education. Can you paint a, a picture for us of what happens when we fail, as we have uh, failed to provide civic education, and if we uh, move forward, continuing to do the same? Yeah, super question. I mean, we, the, the last couple of weeks, I think, have been a real wake-up call for yes. Americans. We've all been aware of the fact of the way civics education has declined in recent years. But honestly, and I'm going to even include myself in this, I'm not sure that we ever thought about what the consequences would be, right? Like, yeah. where is this going to lead us? It, it's not just going to lead to ignorance. It's going to actually lead to something really bad, and that's what we're seeing um, you know, and I think you've got a number of different things going on. The fact that we are not teaching the founding, we are not teaching the founding documents. So kids today don't understand just what a significant act it was and why our founders designed a country the way they did. That's so important. But, you know, it's even worse than that. The fact is a lot of what's being taught in our schools today is they're teaching our kids to hate America. They're teaching that America is the problem, right? And that's what we're seeing manifested in these demonstrations. And the really sad thing is that so many of the people, you know, who wave the Black Lives Matter flag and think that they're fighting for something good are actually fighting for a different kind of racism. And that's all it is. It's like they want to flip the power around and it's it's like almost like a reverse racism, and that's not going to get us where we want to be as a nation. That's not going to lead us to healing and and greater equity. 
Well, and the movement has become so undefined. What people thought was the message has morphed into a number of other things. I think about the influence of Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States, and we've talked about that several times here on this program. The New York Times 1619 Project, which is at best questionable and inaccurate, uh, and the influence that they have uh, had on uh, civics education here in the United States. If we were to look at the at the uh, practicum from schools across the country, civics education is a part of it. Um, there's a void left there if you're not teaching U.S. history. What are uh, high school and college students being taught in the absence of our nation's history, the founding documents, what the purpose was, even if we've fallen short in some areas, what are they being taught? Well, I, you know, honestly, they're being taught a form of Marxism. Um, they're being taught social justice. They're being taught, you know, that the world is defined as power relationships, oppressor and oppressed. That's what the social justice movement is about. And, you know, the founders of Black Lives Matter have been very forthright and open about the fact that they are Marxists in their origins. Now, I think that the BLM movement has morphed into something bigger than that. And I think, you know, I think the vast majority of people who wave the BLM flag, I mean, I'm seeing their little signs everywhere. I don't think that that's necessarily what they're advocating for, but that is what it's about at its root. And that's a lot of what we're teaching in schools. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think for many people who uh, in that one brief moment, uh, when George Floyd's life was taken, we agreed that that justice was the right response and that perhaps we need to revisit areas uh, where reform is necessary. We had that brief moment of agreement, and then it morphed into and was co-opted by a number of other movements that have gone far beyond uh, all of that. Uh, so people, I think, are a bit confused about what they may be advocating for and what the end game uh, might be. So it's important for uh, adults in particular and all of us in general to have a better understanding where is this rather loosely defined movement leading us and what's ultimately going to be the cost to the African-American community of which I'm a part uh, in general, but to the nation as a whole. And I think people will be surprised to learn that it's quite different than the, the fundamental truth that led us at least to this this moment. Um, and they think that, you know, that's where we're uh, where we're focusing our attention. Yeah, uh, such good points. And, you know, I think some of the biggest critics that I've heard of BLM and, and social justice are the black voices themselves who say they certainly don't want to be defined by this, the past of slavery. You know, they don't want to have white people saying what they are or are not capable of doing. They totally resent this culture or this narrative of victimhood that's been created. And it's like, we need to listen to those voices too. And I agree with you completely that it, it all got co-opted and it's gone sideways, but you know what? In a lot of respects, this is the natural evolution of these decades of teaching yes. kids something other than the founding um, and it's it's alarming. You know, I think a lot of people are really alarmed. I don't think any of us expected it to, to be this vociferous, this violent, this angry. You know, I think I think for a long time, we all agreed that there are certain things about this country that are sacrosanct. Right. Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass. I mean, the fact that they're tearing down Frederick Douglass just kills me. Um, you know, George Washington, nothing sacred anymore. Right. No, 
No, the 54th uh, Regiment. I appreciate in your uh, article you quote Ronald Reagan in which he said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. And we've read that or heard that for years and never thought much about it until we're witnessing the consequence, the, the outcome of the lack of civics education. He went on to say, we didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected and handed on from uh, for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. And while at the time he made those statements, it may have seemed um, a bit overstated, I think from our vantage point today, where we stand now, it becomes very clear and bright relief that that's, that's the juncture we find ourselves in. We're at a tipping point. Oh, it's, it's so true. You're so, you've really captured it. Um, but, you know, here's the thing. I, I think a lot of people, I think for a long time, many of us, including those of us who are parents, felt that, um, you know, our, our children were being taken care of by school, right? Their education mm-hmm. yes. was safe. It was, we didn't have to pay attention. And I think if there's one single lesson from everything that's gone on lately, it's that parents cannot give up on the responsibility for their children's education. And there's a real, there's a real opportunity here. And this has been one of the blessings actually of the coronavirus is the fact that so many kids are home now. Parents have a lot more access to what their kids are learning and the materials that they're being presented with. Parents should pay attention. And if they don't like what they see, they need to do something about it. This is not something that the state is going to solve for us. This is not something that the federal government is going to solve for us. This is in our hands as parents, as citizens, and we need to start doing something about it. Absolutely. Uh, Catherine Gorka, thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Catherine Gorka serves as the director of the Fulner Institute Center for Civil Society and the American Dialogue, talking about uh, why we need to advocate for better civics education in our schools and the consequence of failing to do just that. Up next, we're going to talk with one of her associates. Zach Smith is a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll talk about why Washington, D.C. cannot constitutionally become a state through the legislative process, as the U.S. House of Representatives is attempting to make the, the District of Columbia uh, a state, the 51st. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Zach Smith, uh, writing for Tribune News Service, uh, wrote a column on Washington, D.C. and why it cannot be a state. We spoke with uh, his heritage colleague, Catherine Gorka, just a moment ago. She serves as the director of the Fulner Institute, and we talked about um, the need for civics education, and perhaps that would be the answer to this question for the broader population across the country. But as you know, the uh, online uh, message pushed on social media was, D.C. should be a state, pass it on. Now, most people who passed it on may not have any idea what the Constitution says, the laws have said, and what both political parties have agreed upon. Anyway, he's going to talk with us about this effort that was um, uh, achieved by the U.S. House of Representatives preparing uh, and then finally voting on D.C. statehood. Is it possible for the uh, for Congress to pass legislation declaring um, Washington, D.C. as a, a state in the United States and what will happen in the Senate? Well, joining us is Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Georgina. I really appreciate it. 
you know, I think for many people who don't think very deeply on the subject or haven't given it much thought of late, might assume that, you know, D.C., the Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, why not uh, allow that to become the 51st state of the United States? Can you give us a little bit of background here so that we understand, first of all, the seriousness of this and whether or not the House has the authority to make said declaration? Sure, absolutely. And whenever we talk about whether or not D.C. can become a state, there are really two uh, perspectives to it. There's the legal perspective, and then there's also the pragmatic perspective. And if we start with the legal perspective, in the Constitution, it specifically spells out and says that there shall be a federal district um, that shall not exceed 10 square miles, and it shall be the seat of the federal government. And that's essentially what Washington, D.C. is today. Um, but as you know, as you and all of your listeners know, uh, Washington, D.C. does not currently have any voting members in the United States Congress. It has a non-voting delegate. And so the, the push that's been made has been to allow D.C. to become a state, uh, receive two senators in the Senate, and at least one voting member of the House of Representatives. Well, the problem with that is that the Constitution explicitly says that there shall be a seat of federal government that's not part of any state. And so the legislation that passed in the House of Representatives on June 26, it would essentially shrink the seat of the federal government to be the area of the National Mall, the White House, the Capitol Building, uh, the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, those areas, and no more. And if we go back and shift to the pragmatic side of the argument, you know, if we look back to the history and why the founders decided to create a seat of government not within a state, uh, that idea just seems uh, problematic and, and absurd, really. Now, what you're talk what you're describing then is something like a Vatican within uh, the United States, just this very small area that's designated as something other than uh, the area surrounding it, which would become the District of uh, of Columbia or something like or Douglas Commonwealth, I think is the name they came up with. Now, why now, right. and uh, when we know that the U.S. Senate uh, is not going to um, support this, we know that President Trump is has committed to opposing it too, why now, and what would be the purpose for Democrats who almost overwhelmingly, save one vote, uh, supported this notion of uh, establishing the Douglas Commonwealth? Well, it certainly seems to be a politically advantageous position uh, for Democratic lawmakers to take to gain support with their base. It's a very popular position with the Democratic base right now, uh, presumably because if D.C. were to become a state, it would most likely elect Democratic members to the Senate and the House of Representatives. So that certainly cuts in their favor. And kind of the other impetus behind this recent push has been you know, we saw op-eds in the New York Times from Susan Rice, Barack Obama's national security advisor, uh, and in the Washington Post from D.C.'s mayor, Muriel Bowser, saying basically, you know, they were upset because with the recent protests and the unrest and the looting and rioting, they did not have the authority. D.C. local officials did not have the authority to stop President Trump from sending in the National Guard or even federalizing the District of Columbia Police Department if he needed to. And they said, you know, that's an infringement on their sovereignty. But if you go back and look at the history behind why the District of Columbia was created, it really shows that the founding fathers wanted a separate federal entity that's not dependent on local authorities for its safety and security. And they wanted the federal government to be able to control 
uh, basically what happens within that federal enclave. And so the District of Columbia, as currently structured, provides that. If it shrinks down and kind of establishes that Vatican-type state, like, like you mentioned, you know, clearly it would be very difficult, if not impossible, mm-hmm. uh, for the federal government to effectively control what happens in that area. Now, one might assume that because the um, uh, Democrat-led House passed this legislation that this is a partisan issue. However, as you point out in your column, historically, every uh, Justice Department, Republican or Democrat, until President Barack Obama's um, Justice Department, had agreed and come to the same conclusion that Washington, D.C. should remain as the founders had intended. Well, I think it's important to take a step back and look at how the House of Representatives and how Democratic lawmakers are trying to to make to transform D.C. Uh, into a state. They're trying to do it by simple legislation, an act of Congress. And if you go back and you look at what the Justice Department said, uh, what many scholars who have looked at this issue have said, they say, look, you know, there are a lot of reasons practical reasons why D.C. should not be a state. But if, you know, lawmakers, Americans want D.C. to be a state, the process you have to follow to make that happen is to amend the Constitution. Mm -hmm. You can't do it by simple legislation. And unfortunately, what the House and Democratic lawmakers are trying to do is uh, transform D.C. into a state through mere legislation, which is problematic and, in my view, unconstitutional. Well, this is an election year, and I'm certain this will be a subject championed by members of the House who supported it. Um, uh, However, uh, my greater concern is whether or not the American people in general uh, understand the history, why uh, the District of Columbia was established by the framers in the first place, and how, if we wanted to make that difference, uh, how we could go about that. Are you optimistic that the American people grasp the significance of this political move, um, or what do we need to do to make sure uh, that we do understand and appreciate the reason things are set up the way they are. Sure. And, I, you know, I think the immediate impact is clear to, to most people who look at the issue. You know, if D.C. becomes a state, immediately more Democratic lawmakers will be sent to the Capitol from the District of Columbia. But, you know, if you go back again to the history, before the Constitution was passed, under the Articles of Confederation, when the nation's capital was still in Philadelphia, uh, the national government was threatened by a group of rebellious soldiers. They asked the Pennsylvania governor to send troops to help defend the national government, and he wouldn't do it. And so because of that, the national government had to flee the state, basically. And the founding fathers wanted to make sure that the national government would never be in that same position again. Mm-hmm. And one of the main ways they sought to accomplish that was by having an independent federal district like the District of Columbia, that wouldn't have to rely on a a state or local authorities for their police services, their fire services, electricity, any of the things that that we take for granted. And if D.C. were to become a state, that would really go against the, the whole idea behind having an independent federal seat of government. Well, Zach Smith, I so appreciate your helping us understand and recall what the uh, what the law is around all of this. And we'll certainly continue to follow the subject with great interest. Thank you so much, Zach. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me on. Take care. 
Once again, Zach Smith is a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Anne-Marie Hancock. She's the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral. And while that may be something of an obscure title and you might be scratching your head, we're going to talk about the challenges of being a caregiver. In fact, that's precisely what she was for her mother in her latter years. She was in her 90s. She had a terminal uh, cancer diagnosis, but was rather cantankerous, didn't accept that diagnosis, and quite frankly, was a difficult person. We'll talk about what she learned along the way and what we might learn from her in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. You might recall a week or so ago, we spoke with Anne-Marie Hancock. She's the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral. We were talking about how to make provision for your mother, father, grandparent who might be in a nursing home during this pandemic. But she's the author of a book, and I wanted to give some time to talk more about uh, what she has written as a caregiver. She was the caregiver for her mother, which was no easy task. Her mom was in her 90s. She denied the existence of her cancer diagnosis. She refused to give up her car or her independence and lived alone until the end. Well, the book was written, according to my guests, again, we're talking about you can't drive your car to your own funeral, with a hope that readers would find loving solutions to the stressful challenges of caring for a dear one, even a difficult dear one. Well, joining us once again to talk more about that is Anne-Marie Hancock. Again, she's the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral, <laughs> to Your Own Funeral, which is her third book. Welcome back. I'm so glad to have you with us. Oh, Georgine, you're lovely to have me. I'm smiling listening to you, but you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> well, explain for it's us the title real. of the book. <clears throat> the title actually uh, came as an afterthought because the family made so many comical, uh, humorous comments about mom and her love for her automobile. She had a little red Toyota. And her license plate was, I hope you're ready for this, perfect, P-R-R-F-C-T. And mom lived in that car, and more so at the end of her life. And as a family, we pondered, you know, what exactly is the deal with this car? And so I started uh, talking to some friends. My daughter has a master's in psychology to Corey and uh, started looking at uh, dream interpretation with a friend who does that and I found it very interesting because the car is the vehicle that takes us to something or away from something to a dream to a mission to a goal and for my mother that little Toyota was her ticket to freedom she was totally at peace and independent and in control, driving that little car around. And many of our stories that are both philosophical and humorous took place in that little Toyota. <laughs> so the car is very, very significant, and I do believe my mom thought she was going to uh, take that with her right to her death, and she <laughs> almost did. She renewed her driver's license at age 91, we uh, had the talk as a family and said, Mom, you have earned the right now 
you've got some challenges going on, that being squamous cell cancer that had gone to her brain, uh, cracked her spine, and took the side of her face. Mm. And uh, that having been said, we said, it's our turn. It's our turn to take you wherever you want to go. That's our delight. And what we heard was, I'm an independent woman, and I drive my own car. So um, we said, well, it's a little little late uh, to be renewing your driver's license, and you haven't been feeling well. I feel just fine, and I'm doing this. And we thought it would pass. And one morning, it was in a whisper. Uh, it was around 9 o'clock. I heard her voice in the morning. Anne, are you there? I said, yes, Mom, you're talking to me. You, you dialed me. Yes, yes, I know. Don't be smart. Okay, what's going on? Where are you? Well, I'm at, I'm at DMV. I just renewed my license. <laughs> I said, Mama, Mama, did, did you have to drive the car? No, just had to read two lines of the eye chart. I'm out of there now. I said, are you headed home? Would you like me to? And I'm going to Walmart. I'm going shopping. And that was that. And mom's car had lots of little nicks and bumps and some I personally experienced when I was with her. And I would say, oh, my, my, what happened here to your light? And we've got to, uh, Tommy, my husband, we've got to have that fixed. It's fine just the way it is. Somebody must have bumped me in a parking lot. And uh, we would just end the conversation. And I said so many stories. Uh, Mom was a character. She was so feisty, <laughs> so courageous, and just outspoken. You, I mean, she had always been outspoken, but I think more so and without filter uh, in her sickness and uh, towards the end of her life. We were driving down Charter Colony in Virginia. I thought we were going to the cardiac surgeon. And uh, all of a sudden, I heard, Anne, you're a moron. And I pulled over to the side of the road, Georgine, and I said, what did you say, Mom? Do you, is something wrong? And you're a moron. I said, Mother, two years ago, I was in Ireland researching our family name, which is M-O-R-A-N. And sadly... It's pronounced moron. I was told that all over Ireland. And that makes all of us, Mom, one big family of morons. (laughs) She looked at me. I saw a little tiny grin. And she said, Anne, you're not funny. I said, Mom, I wasn't trying to be. It's a true story. But instead of saying, Georgine... We're not going to cardiac today. We're going to the GP. It came out uh, angry and personal. You're a moron. And while I've already established I'm happy to accept that, I realized that mom was terrified. The people who are suffering and who are taking these end-of-life journeys, uh, they are in a state of fear. They are making this trip alone. 
and so many have so much advice for them. And none of us, none of us like someone talking at us and sometimes not even to us. Sometimes silence is golden. And I had to learn. I thought I could handle this three-year journey um, well. I had a healing uh, ministry that took me all over the world, Italy, Venezuela, Sisi, all over the United States, national talk shows. And um, I had enormous experience with death and dying. But this was a horse of a different color. One, it was family. Two, it was personal. And there were the moments, like I just described to you, where there is a tendency to take things personally. And you know, Georgine, I know from my TV background, uh, everybody isn't going to love you all the time. Life isn't like that. And for every 700 wonderful comments, you're terrific, you're the best, I love you, I wouldn't miss you. There's the one that says, I don't like you. I didn't like that show. And what we learn as pros in the professional life is that we can't take it personally. We look at it, we evaluate it, and we say, do I look like I stuck my finger in a light switch today. Was my hair that bad? And then I say, well, no. I mean, the studio did it. It's a new look. No, I don't like it, but it, ha- it will have to suffice for now. And I let it go. Someone else calls and says, for instance, you're a moron. You look at it and you say, well, my comments were well-researched. I did my homework. I thought I was logical and patient. I'm going to dismiss this. And I think carrying this over to uh, end-of-life journeys and caretaking, you must carry that lesson with you. Absolutely. Because with family, it's much more difficult, much more personal. And this is your mama calling you a name. And uh, it goes straight to the heart. It certainly does. Go ahead. I was just saying it certainly does. I need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking with uh, my guest, Anne-Marie Hancock. She is the author of several books, but her latest is You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral, (laughs) to Your Own Funeral. (laughs) And it's a a great book that um, invites readers to take an adventure with a courageous woman's journey through the latter years of her life through her daughter's eyes. We'll continue that conversation in just a moment. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. We're talking with Anne-Marie Hancock. She's the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral. Um, and it is a book in which she chronicles three years of caregiving of her mother. 
Uh, her mother, um, she writes, operated with uh, without filter. She remained in denial about the cancer diagnosis. She challenged the prognosis and uh, comments from doctors, nurses, family, and friends. And the book was written to share her experiences, Anne-Marie, her daughter's experiences in loving and caring for her mother through the heartaches and the joys the times of laughter and sadness, and caregiving certainly includes all of that. Um, once again, tell us a little bit about how you transitioned from just being a daughter to becoming a caregiver for a very independent, outspoken woman who wasn't necessarily looking to, looking to be taken care of. You know, Georgine, I don't think there are any accidents in this life. I, I really don't believe there is any moment in our life that's an accident. And for me, I've, I've led a very, very busy life, been on the road a lot, have a beautiful family. I have two sisters and one worked full time. Um, I have another still working and um, they actually uh, have more difficulty with mom, uh, willing to uh, do what they could. But I decided with my experiences I'd already shared with you, with healing, my love of children, particularly terminally ill children, my husband and I lost a child, that I was up to the task. And the healing ministry had taught me so many lessons. But I think what God was trying to do was teach me a few more, to increase my sense of humor, to learn uh, not to take these things we were talking about in the last segment personally. And um, also spiritually, I really had days where I came to know what it, what it means at the deepest level to depend on him. And yes. I am totally convinced he was carrying me in those moments because I'm a human being. We all are. And I would come home some days and I'd go, all right, God, I have conversations with God. Um, I, I would crawl in bed at night and I'd say, you saw it all. This was not the best day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've used all the tools in my box and I just, I don't know what to do. I think I failed. And I would simply ask God every night, as corny as it may sound to people, and I was an old debater, ranked nationally in debate, a hard-nosed reporter, but I was humbled by this experience. And I would say simply to God, please, I'm going back in tomorrow morning for the day. Give me your heart. Let me speak as you would speak. Let me hear only as you would hear. And I convinced myself and knew that I would get the best guidance. I learned some days to just be silent, that mom didn't need to hear my babbling. I learned through that prayer that some days, though I bring books that were rejected, uh, mom would tell me I needed to watch more Archie Bunker or I needed to read, a, I think it was Nora Roberts, a Nora Roberts book. Or I need to tone down and be less serious and watch Notre Dame football. <laughs> so I learned through all of that that it was very difficult for her 
to talk about this journey. This is why she never said cancer. This is why when she saw a TV commercial with a chiropractor, she said in the spring, I'm going to see that chiropractor and he's going to fix my spine. What I learned through prayer, through a sense of humor, through not taking things personally, through not taking her on and questioning her statements, her decisions, I learned to roll with it and Mm -hmm. say things like, we'll check that out, Mama, in the spring. I would carry books. Mom did not want to talk about uh, anything spiritual. And God is always at the top of my list. And uh, here I am hauling books in and quite a variety. And then I'd come back the next morning and the books would be stacked at the door. And Mom would advise me once again that I needed to lighten up. So uh, I let go of it and uh, stopped addressing that, even had a priest call her one night, and I realized the, I was making myself the issue. Mom was the focus, not me. I was concerned about her spiritual connection, and because I was focused basically, if you really look at that on myself, I wanted the priest to call her and talk to her to see if she had anything to say. And so Father Glass called her. I asked him to call me back. I was concerned. He called me back in two minutes. I said, what happened? He said, your mother said she's great. Asked me if I saw the uh, football game on Saturday. (laughs) And she said she was busy and had to go. I said, oh, she didn't. She did. You ask her if she wanted to talk about anything? And he said it was pretty clear, Amory, she was busy and didn't need to chat. Uh, It was a very quick conversation. I do remember, Georgine, one day, as I said, those uh, my stacks of books would be at the front door uh, every other day, and that was my message, get him out of here. And uh, I finally, when I let go, when I absolutely let go and learned that Silence is sometimes golden. I don't have to go in and chatter up with my issues, which at the top of my list was, you've got to say something here before this ends. You've, you've got to talk about God. You've got to talk about where you're going. And uh, I realized that she didn't, that she was very private. She was private about everything, and that's why that car was so significant. She, it, she was private in the car. She was independent in the car. So I would go and turn and just sit and uh, pick up food items that might be on the floor, take food items out of the refrigerator that uh, maybe were moldy because she was too unwell to do that herself. I would organize her meds and close my mouth. And one day towards the end, She said, I want to tell you something. Are you leaving? And I said, "Uh, do you want me to? She said, I want to say something to you. I said, shoot. You know, you brought me that book, that one book. I said, which one, Mom? That John Paul book, you know, and they had those prayers in there. I said, did you like that? 
Well, it was all right, uh, but it's it's too much. It's a big book. It's a fat book. It's too many pages. But but I said a couple of the prayers, and that was one of the most special days for me. <laughs> yes, yes. And what is totally fascinating, there are 365 days in the year, and my mother passed on the feast. Of Saint John Paul, I am totally convinced he took her by the hand on her journey back to God. You know, I so appreciated you can't drive your car to your funeral because you—it's filled with humor. It's entertaining. It's a quick read. It—it it, uh, you pr- offer some practical advice on how to approach a loved one, and you approached your mother with love and respect, regardless of the response you may have gotten back. You listened to her. Um, you were willing to set aside your own interests. And I can so relate to this because, as you might recall, in our first conversation, I told you that my mother lives with my husband and me. She's uh, 89, um, and I am her caregiver. And through this pandemic, that's been something of a challenge, uh, along with being a tremendous blessing. But the way you approached your mother with love and respect, and that's, that's, I think, two of the main things you have to do, especially with a parent, really inspired me and challenges me and um, reminds me that God is sufficient to equip me. He gives grace for the the journey that you're called to. And you were able to love your mother right through to the end. And I, I know for me, I've been, I, I've said, I want to walk my mother home well without regrets. And uh, every day, just like you, God has given me the yeah. grace to say the right things to do. I don't do it perfectly. And there are days like you when I uh, lay my head on the pillow and said, man, I didn't do that day very well. But God, again, <laughs> gives the grace. So I just loved um, hearing your journey that affirmed so much of my own and challenged me in some other uh, some areas as well, and will I think our, our listeners too? You know, Georgine, I think I, it's it's very very humbling to be a caretaker. Yes, I thought I had all the tools from all my years praying with people and being with the terminally ill, but let me tell you, I was to learn humility. Yes. We're all God's children. He didn't divide us. We divided ourselves. We are all his babies. He loves us all the same. And you said it beautifully. Each deserves love and respect. And when you are on this lonesome journey towards the end, there is so much fear. And there is private grieving. And then there is private making resolution with God. The lessons, some of them were for me to learn, yes. to learn peace, to be at peace with myself, not to uh, judge, to continue to maintain a sense of humor and to laugh at myself and at life and my humanity, my humanity. You're, you said it again wonderfully. We are not perfect, but We are ordinary people on extraordinary journeys. That's right. Well, Anne-Marie Hancock, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. I thoroughly enjoyed the book and look forward to our next exchange. I would love that so much, (laughs) and I would love to know how you're faring in your journey. But uh, I am very much at peace uh, with mine and very much at peace with the book, which proceeds all go to multiple sclerosis. My daughter has suffered with this for 20 years. If you go to my website, author Anne Marie Hancock, 
www.thepowerofpositivelifestyle.com. All information, interviews are there, but most of all, there is a letter from the winningest coach in all of basketball, Mike Krzyzewski, who fell in love with my daughter some 20 years ago. He wrote a letter uh, about the book, but about Corey. He compared her to Michael Jordan when he Mm. worked with Mike in the Olympics. And uh, my daughter is a perfect example of just smiling through her whole journey, never complaining, always grateful to God that she wakes up to another day. And she is another patient who is my teacher. Yeah, yeah. Once again, Anne-Marie Hancock, author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Funeral. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Earlier in the program, in the first hour, I talked with Catherine Gorka, and we talked about the need for civics education in the country and the fact that if we don't monitor what's being taught to young people, this nation may be morphed into something unrecognizable in the days ahead. And that the Black Lives Matter movement is not a monolithic movement. There are specific leaders overseeing elements of it, and they have a specific Marxist agenda. But many who hold to the phrase Black Lives Matter are not connected with that. So it's very difficult to trace it. Well, however, that changed somewhat. Proposed federal legislation that would radically transform the nation's criminal justice system through such changes as eliminating agencies like the Drug Enforcement Administration and the use of surveillance technology is set to be unveiled by the Movement for Black Lives. Now, this is an extension of one element of the Black Lives Matter movement. Dubbed the BREATHE Act, this legislation, it's the culmination of a project that was led by the the policy table of the Movement for Black Lives, a coalition of more than 150 organizations. It comes at an unprecedented moment of national reckoning around police brutality and systematic racism that spurred global protest, cries for change after several high-profile killings. Um, of black Americans, including George Floyd, but not limited to George Floyd, says the um, Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors. Uh, We stand on the shoulders of giants and there has been 400 years of work that black people have done to try to get us closer to freedom. This moment is a watershed moment. I think this moment calls for structural change and transformative change in ways that we haven't seen in a very long time. We see this opportunity to push for push the breathe act as part of what we're calling the modern day civil rights act well the legislation was first chaired with the associated press it's scheduled to uh, and was released uh, sometime today i was on the air at the time that took place so i'll have to report on it tomorrow at a press conference that uh, included an appearance by john legend the singer not that that's particularly meaningful when you're talking about serious public policy well the proposed changes are sweeping likely to receive robust pushback from lawmakers who perceive the legislation as too radical but not surprising university of michigan professor and criminal justice expert heather ann thompson acknowledged the uphill climb but noted that the legislation is being introduced at a highly opportune moment She's quoted, um, she is the author of uh, a recent book, she's quoted as saying, I think those programs that they're suggesting eliminating only look radical if we really ignore the fact that there has been tremendous pressure to meaningfully reform this criminal justice system. Well, whether or not this is meaningful reform uh, remains to be seen. I haven't seen the proposals yet, but we'll uh, try to get that information and report on it later this week. 
David Limbaugh writing on America's survival and the fact that it hangs in the balance asked the question, how long can this nation survive when its main cultural and educational institutions preach a relentless, unchallenged stream of anti-Americanism to young people and others who lack the background to resist this toxicity? And this is a question I think many are contemplating under our current circumstance. Along with others, he writes, I have long argued that the American left has a major problem with America as founded, yet Democrats are outraged by the suggestion and too many Republicans seem insufficiently concerned about it. They better wake up. If current events aren't enough to turn your head, please consider the following data presented by Eric Kaufman, professor of politics at the University of London Burbeck College. Kaufman writes that the cultural revolutionaries who are toppling statues and renaming buildings are changing minds and could be in a position to enact a root and branch reconstruction of America into something completely unrecognizable to its present day inhabitants. He adds, imagine a country whose collective memory has been upended with a new constitution, anthem and flag. Its name changed from the sinful America to something less tainted, far-fetched, not according to data I've collected on what liberal white Americans actually believe. He isn't... um, He isn't talking merely about the extreme left, but American liberals. This is a chilling stuff, but unsurprising. Um, And it goes on from there. We are at a significant crossroads. Now, I don't want to implicate the legislation, the Breathe Act, as um, it's been uh, introduced through a press conference earlier today, which we'll revisit at a future time when I've had an actual opportunity to read and look at it. But this represents, and it is at least in uh, anticipating that uh, press conference is being described as radical that would fundamentally, as uh, President Barack Obama was known to say, fundamentally transform America. Now, transformation isn't always bad. The question is, what kind of transformation are we talking about? And the possibility that it would be a major transformation, even on the very fundamental things I mentioned just a moment ago, is a real reality. Now, we're going to continue to follow this. We'll revisit it uh, this week, and I'll try to get as much information as possible on the Movement for Black Lives Breathe Act, which was by press conference earlier today introduced uh, as legislation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll wrap things up in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. If you're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show, well, I've got good news for you. Uh, the Christian News Northwest is back in print. For the first time in three months, uh, Christian News Northwest is back. The July issue went to press, um, I believe, yesterday, and the distribution will start throughout the week to the many, many locations where you would typically find Christian News Northwest. John Fortmeyer, who is the publisher, uh, wrote this uh, about the uh, reprinting of the paper. We've all heard the phrases unprecedented crisis, challenging times, difficult times. However, we describe it between the coronavirus pandemic and then the terrible unrest our nation has experienced. It is clear that what was normal before is no longer normal. The newspapers of uh, all kinds have not been exempt from the changes. Every newspaper, including ours, has been critically affected by the economic downturn, particularly by severe loss of ad revenue due to countless event cancellations. Because 99% of the normal circulation and distribution points in Oregon and Southwest Washington have been closed due to the pandemic, they made the very painful decision not to go to print for April, May, and June. But that has changed. Generous and much appreciated non-tax deductible donations 
to their support Christian News Northwest newspaper site at GoFundMe.com have helped carry the newspaper through the past three months. Um, the the uh, He writes that uh, they're trusting that the Lord uh, who carried uh, this venture through many challenges, these two and a half decades, um, we're asking him to do the same moving forward. If you believe in their 26-year mission to inform and encourage the evangelical Christian community, your prayers and support are especially important. But again, the headline, Christian News Northwest, is back in print. Now, he began his email uh, by pointing out that we refer to the times we find ourselves in as unprecedented, as challenging times, as difficult times, and certainly all of those Monikers apply to what we're experiencing, but I was reminded recently of um, previous generations and some of the things they have faced, and perhaps uh, we can find some encourage and fortitude in uh, recalling the things they endured. Now, imagine, if you will, if you can, and for some of us, it's easier than for others, but imagine you were born in 1900. When you're 14, World War I begins and ends when you're 18 with 22 million dead, unprecedented. Soon after a global pandemic, the Spanish flu appears. It killed 50 million people, and you're alive and 20 years old. It was unprecedented. When you're 29, you survive the global economic crisis that started with the collapse of the New York Stock Exchange, causing inflation, unemployment, and famine. When you're 33 years old, the Nazis come to power. When you're 39, World War II begins and ends when you're 45 years old with a 60 million dead. In the Holocaust, 6 million Jews die. It was unprecedented. All of that by the time you're 45. When you're 52, the Korean War begins. Now, wasn't World War I the war to end all wars? And you've lived through that. You've lived through the Second World War. And now, at 52, the Korean War begins. When you're 64, the Vietnam War begins and ends when you're 75. A child born in 1985 thinks his grandparents have no idea how difficult life is, but they've survived several wars and catastrophes that were, to put it uh, mildly, unprecedented. Today, we have all the comforts in a new world amid a new pandemic, but we complain because we need to wear masks. We complain because we must stay confined to our houses where we have food, electricity, running water, Wi-Fi, even Netflix or other uh, forms of entertainment. None of that existed back in the day, but humanity survived those circumstances and never lost their joy of living. Now, I don't want to minimize how difficult and tragic and overwhelming it must have been, but they endured it. A small change in our perspective can generate miracles. We should be and can be thankful that we are alive. We should do everything we need to do to protect and help each other and to be grateful. We're living in the year 2020. Many have hoped, wished that we could just fast forward past it and look back on it with a great sigh of relief, but we are in the midst of it, and I am convinced as a follower of Jesus that everything he allows us to experience and endure has purpose. He is perhaps strengthening our spiritual muscles for the days ahead, the challenges that are yet to come. He's perhaps revealing his faithfulness to us and his character in ways that we might not have noticed because we were, quite frankly, busy. He has given us opportunities to realize just how important 
time together with one another really is, to perhaps appreciate the body of Christ, the church that gathers together for worship and fellowship, raising our voices in song, unless you live in the state of California, in worship and praise, bearing one another's burdens, encouraging one another, lifting one another up, having the opportunity to sit in a common location to hear the appointed leaders of a congregation speak to us from God's word. Perhaps we're learning to appreciate that in ways that we would not have because we've taken most things for granted. Maybe he's using this opportunity to teach us to appreciate the people we work with and who work for us. That maybe we just simply had little regard for. Maybe recognizing the tremendous sacrifice and hard work and commitment and love and care that is extended to us by healthcare workers, many of whom during this pandemic have been willing to put their lives on the line in order to protect ours. I have a procedure coming up on Thursday. I won't describe it because, quite frankly, I don't really want to think about it. It's most unpleasant. But before I was allowed to move forward with that procedure where medical professionals will put themselves in harm's way to make sure that I'm taken care of, I had to have a COVID-19 test. Now, I have to tell you, it was the most unpleasant experience, or at least one of them, of my life. I now call it the COVID-19 lobotomy. I had no idea there was so much space between the nostril of my nose and the top of my skull where, you know, there's a lot of brain matter in between. It was most unpleasant, but there was somebody who traipsed from under a tent outside, asked me to roll my window down and did the test for me, not knowing if I had it or not, putting herself in harm's way to make sure that I could have the procedure and not uh, be a risk to others. That's amazing to me. I think for many of us, we have come to appreciate and admire and respect and even perhaps express our gratitude to those who serve in healthcare. And then there are those who have taken the oath to protect and serve. Now, we all admit there are some who have gone beyond what is accepted in that, um, in that role, but there are so many law enforcement professionals, first responders, who do just that out of genuine concern for our communities. And maybe God is teaching us to be more grateful to them and to express that gratitude in meaningful ways. Whatever the case may be, imagine you were born in 1900 and maybe you can bear this burden a little lighter, knowing that God was faithful to that generation. And in his word says he'll be faithful to all generations, which includes your own and the generations that will follow and the generations that will follow them. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. Come to appreciate all three just a little bit more during this pandemic. Thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G-Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.